Welcome to the new TV Gold podcast from Media Week's Andrew Mercado and James Manning, a podcast for people who love great television. Welcome to a new episode of TV Gold. We've got three dramas today, all Australian productions, Andrew Mercado, which is good to see, isn't Amazing it? Amazing to think it's the end of the year, end Look, of ratings period. Two of these are on Disney+, Plus, Far Away Downs, and The Artful Dodger. We've got Paper Dolls, which is on Paramount+, Plus, and we've got a documentary that's very dependent on Australians, Stockake and Waterman. Yeah, good pick. I didn't <laughs> I, I didn't see the Aussie theme running through it, but it's all there this week. Let's start with Far Away Downs. It's a reimagining of Baz Luhrmann's Australia. Yep. A movie that was had a pretty rough time from a lot of critics, but as Baz has been pointing out in a few interviews this week, it's his biggest movie box office in a number of European countries where it did very well. Yeah, well, you know, Australian films have always done well in Europe, right back to the days of Walkabout and Wake and Fright in 1970. They always had their greatest success there because Europeans love the outback, they love the vistas, so that doesn't surprise me. Um, I'll tell you a story about <laughs> the first screening of it in Sydney for the critics. They had it in that big cinema there at Event Cinemas on George Street. I think it was 9.30 in the morning. And, you know, the first... 20 minutes of the film is like a kind of a cartoon. It's like this screwball comedy. And I just remember James Valentine from the ABC sitting kind of towards the front and he just turned around and kind of half stood up and looked at the whole audience and put his hands in the, in the air and just went, what the hell? What's happening? Never forget that moment because everyone was just like, what is this? It's not at all what you're expecting when the film starts. The other really vivid memory I have of it is that then that night they had the world premiere, the red carpet, Tracy Grimshaw going live for a current affair. So Baz comes down the red carpet and Tracy says to him as an opening question, how would you describe the film? And Baz says to her, I'd describe it as an Australian version of Gone with the Wind. And I'm not joking, James. Tracy Grimshaw physically recoiled. You saw her whole body kind of go, you're kidding me. She had to struggle to regain her composure and be professional. And she, she went, ah, ah, ah. She didn't know what to say to that because it's insane to compare that movie to Gone with the Wind. You know, th- this is the one of the problems I've always had with it. If you're going to name check one of the most popular and beloved movies of all time, let somebody else do that. Let somebody else say to you, this has elements of Gone with the Wind in it. But to be, actually be saying that while you're making the movie and then to keep saying it after, it's, 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 it's incredible kind of hubris to say that. And see, Gone with the Wind, I'm going to be a real cinephile (laughs) here. Gone with the Wind was made in 1939. 1939 is regarded by most cinema historians, and Baz would know this, as the greatest year in Hollywood. It's also the year that The Wizard of Oz came out. Now, The Wizard of Oz has a major part of the plot of Australia and Far Away Downs. And here's the thing that annoys me more than anything else in the film, and you're going to laugh and say this is irrelevant, but it's not (laughs) if you're into cinema and Baz is into cinema. When little Nulla's mother 
drowns in the water tank and he's there sobbing in the dirt and Nicole Kidman's character, Lady Ashley, comes down and he says, tell me a story. And she says, all right, I'll tell you a story. And she glances over and there's a newspaper. She looks at the newspaper and there's an ad for The Wizard of Oz on the front of this newspaper. And the date of the newspaper is the 31st of March, 1939, or whatever it is. It's March, 1939. She tells him the plot of The Wizard of Oz and she sings the song from it. So here's what annoys me. The Wizard of Oz didn't come out in cinemas in America till August, 1939. It's physically impossible for a newspaper (laughs) to be advertising the film screening in Darwin, which by the way, was the end of the world back then. It would have taken, I reckon, two years for that movie to get to Darwin. But here's the newspaper lying in the dirt conveniently. It just does my head in because for me, there's nothing in Australia or far away downs that is real or not a cartoon or just a bit of fantasy make-believe to create this thing. There's nothing authentic in it whatsoever for me. Well, look, uh, yeah, I think... You were right. I'm, I am going to say that's irrelevant. <laughs> I knew you but, would. But as if it matters, come on. I mean, you know, I like the fact that he's linked that that movie to this movie. I mean, they. I guess if the one timeline they would have had to get right is the bombing of Darwin. Yeah. You can't shift that around. No, you can't. And, but you could have them driving cattle he, in 1940 and ending up in Darwin and seeing the movie in cinemas. <laughs> I don't understand why he, he was determined to do the 1939 year because that's the start of the war. Mm. So you can tell that story that the war started. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to throw the Wizard of Oz in at that point. Look, so it, it, it's it's epic. I, I forgot how epic a production it is, though. And when I when you remind us that that's what Baz says about it, I go, eh, well, you know, there's a bit of it. I mean, look, the... The locations and the and the six they've broken this series up into six sort of I don't know what do you call them epic six six episodes but each tell a different part of the story right? yeah and each one is pretty amazing uh, pictorially what they've done what he's recreated I mean the whole Darwin thing is just brilliant you know the uh, the, the faraway downs property and the countryside just looks amazing. Um, and this, he did all this quite a long time ago when I'm sure technology's come a long way since when was it? 2000 and 2001, 2002, 2008. Yeah. So no, it wasn't 2008. It was before then. No, I think it was 2009. No, no way. It was earlier, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's after the Olympics, just after the Olympics. Alrighty. Okay. But you know, so he's had to do a lot of that without the technology that's available today. So I think it's pretty amazing. I mean, Darwin just looked amazing. Everything, the the whole pier, the hotel, all the bombing scenes, which are quite later in the series, just look fantastic. I mean, for people who don't know, Nicole Kidman plays um, Lady Sarah Ashley. She's married to – she lives in England. Her husband owns a big property in Australia. They don't get on very well. Um, She's come out, I think, to divorce him and sell the property. Um, No spoilers, but he – something happens to him early early in the film. Yeah. Um, She decides to stay on. Um, Hugh Jackman plays a drover. Um, who comes into her life, helps her out. Um, you can work out what might be happening <laughs> there. And um, it just goes on from there. It's, But, yeah, look, I I got so engaged with this but that you're talking about the start. It's almost like a Gilbert and Sullivan 
a comic opera, isn't it? <laughs> yes, Just, it is. But I sort of – It's a very you know, bizarre opening. But it's a very film. Baz Luhrmann sort of opening, isn't it? Um, but it's a bit out of touch with the rest of the movie. Look, it's You keep a, expecting people to break out in song. Yeah, it's every genre. He's mm. thrown every genre he can think of in there. It's war movie, it's romance, it's cattle drive, it's outback adventure, and it's screwball comedy, and it's cartoon. The opening of the film is very bizarre to me, and, and you're right, it does make you think what's happening and what's going on, and uh, and then it turns into something else. You know, and I still think, even watching this series, I still am very aware that even though they filmed a lot of it in the Northern Territory, a lot of it is being filmed on a set at Fox Studios. Like when they set up camp, that's yeah. a set. I, I look at it and go, this is a set. I, I always but, know when we're in okay. a set. Everyone does that. Yeah, I, sure. But the performances for me are someone wrote on the weekend. I don't know who it was, but I, I went, that's perfect. Vaudevillian. <laughs> that's what the performances are like. I've never seen Jack Thompson act worse in a movie than he does in this film. Talk about overact, that death scene, that eye-rolling death scene of his. <laughs> and David Wenham, he needs a moustache he can twirl, that kind of villainous thing. You know, it's just – I just find some of the performances – someone told me at the time, I'd much prefer to see a documentary about the making of Australia, even if it took six hours, than see Australia extended like this because I think there's a story to tell about how this movie ended up such a mess. Someone told me that the reason that the performances are so over the top is because once they got to the Northern Territory, don't forget this is the first time that Baz was writing a story from scratch. He's great when he's adapting other people's works. Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Moulin Rouge was a 1953 movie. He takes material. Strictly Ballroom was a class project from NIDA that he then went and put onto the screen. This was the first time he wrote a script from beginning to end. And my understanding of what I was told about the making of the film was once they got to the Northern Territory and saw how amazing it was, he was like changing the story and rewrites, rewrites, and that the actors were going, this might be our only chance for our big scene. Everyone was acting it very large in case that was their only moment that ended up in the film. So, yeah, there seems to be an untold story there about the making of the film that I think might shed light on why some elements of it are so messy. Yeah. I can't remember a lot from when I first saw it. I remember walking away thinking, oh, that was okay. I was a bit, I was wondering why have so many people, you know, feel a bit angry about it. I thought it was okay. You know, it wasn't my movie of the year, but it was, I was quite happy watching it. And then, you know, seeing it again, um, I couldn't remember much about the ending, but I looked that up and I know he, he has changed the ending. He's got a new ending. Yeah. And apparently they shot two endings. Yep. Um, as they do with lots of movies. Yeah. He decided to go to one, with one. They've used the other one here. Yeah. I think this ending works quite well. Yeah, it works I, well. I quite like what And I like the name change too. I think it's yeah. better as far away down. I always have a problem with that title, Australia, because it's pretentious. <laughs> that that notion that this film, is, as he was saying at the time, this film will be everything. It's like, stop. <laughs> wanking on about it. You know, I, I think it sounds better as far away downs. Everyone watching it knows it's filmed in Australia. It didn't need to be called Australia. Okay, look, you've slammed Jack Thompson, right? Poor Jack. <laughs> I love Jack. <laughs> but, but I think he's good in this. It's it's a fun character, you know. He's um, 
as Kipling Flynn. Let's talk about some of the others. How good is Brandon Walters? Though? You're not well, gonna, he's the, you're he's, not, he steals every scene. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to knock him. He's fantastic. Yeah, he's, he's brilliant. Yeah. I thought Nicole was pretty good in this. I, I thought it was a believable character. Well, I reckon that they've done something in the digital oh, editing this time <laughs> because if you speak to anyone that remembers watching the film, yes. she went and had plastic surgery in the middle of the making of that film. Okay. And her look allegedly. was changing, <laughs> allegedly changing drastically. Every I just remember the first time watching it, you'd be one suddenly go, "What's what's what's happening to her face? Why is it different from the last moment?" She was well. Look, I don't know about that, but I, I think it's I, been smoothed out. There was there was some wild discrepancies in her appearance in the first film. I think they've smoothed that out. Yeah, but anyway, I thought I thought she did a pretty good job. Hugh Jackman is good. He's um. Yeah, some of it's a bit over the top and, you know, he plays the hunky dude and the shirt's off. And, yeah. But, I, look, it's a good role. David Goldfield is just brilliant. He's just so good. Such a screen presence every time yeah. he's there, isn't it? It's just, yeah. It's just, just so. The surprise packet for me was David Wenham. Yeah, right. Well, he plays nasty really well. Yeah, we don't see him do you know, a lot. You don't know. Do there, was, there was that crime drama on for Foxtel about about that Melbourne crime family. I can't remember oh. it now, but he was in that. I think he played one of the heads of that crime family, and he, he was a good villain there. But in this, wow. Yeah. I mean, he's a person you normally like on screen, right? Yeah. Just, Good friendly air, good that's on your right. Mate, you know, yeah. Diver wow, Dan he, from Sea Change. You just, you really <laughs> yeah. dislike. He's such a nasty bastard in this. Brian Brown's good as King Carney, who's the sort of the competing cattle baron, if you like. Yep. Um, trying to sort of push uh, um, Lady Sarah Ashley out of business. You know, forcing yep. her. He wants to buy the property. Um. Uh, Essie Davis is good. Uh, good to see Max Cullen on the screen again. Yeah. It's a bit of a cameo. He plays a drunk in the pub. Barry Otto's in there. Yeah, but Ben Mendelsohn was quite – I thought he was good as the yeah. cap captain of the sort of forces at, at Darwin, if you like. I almost, I almost felt that Ben Mendelsohn's role was shorter in this miniseries than the original okay. movie. He, he seemed to loom quite large in my memory from the movie, but almost felt like an afterthought in the TV series. That could be my imagination. Yeah, and Tony Barry. Oh, two as the Tony Barry's fantastic as, the copper, as that you know? cop. Yeah, we, we saw him in his what final performance earlier this year, didn't yeah. we? Yeah, yeah. Okay, but look, and and some of the stuff. I mean, the whole the whole sequence about the the Darwin bombing of Darwin, I thought was very well done. I mean, it was just very very exciting, and all the action went around, and the taking the cattle from the farm to Darwin. That was and the stuff along the edge of the cliff. That was quite, you know, nerve wracking. Yes, the yeah. suspense that they built. I thought they uh, did it pretty well. So look, in all, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, look, I watched it all um, because I needed to be reminded yeah. of it. I, I, I'm still a bit underwhelmed by it all. Um, I don't even know that it really works as a TV series, to be honest with you. Really? It's an extended cut of a film hacked up into episodes. The episodes don't even go for the same amount of time. It's all... Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, the good thing is... It's they all over the shop. They me. didn't decide to do 10 eps and no. really blow it out because he had so much footage. What? They could have really... So I think they did a, a good job of keeping it, you know, quite tight. 
my understanding is that there was more celluloid shot on Australia than any other film in the history of the Australian film industry. Really? So, yeah, you're right. They could have been a 10-hour miniseries. If anything, they've been restrained, so that's a good thing. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so that is Far Away Downs. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's up now. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, the, the movie went for about two hours 45, and this series just goes for three hours. So it was, there's not a lot of difference in time. Yeah. Let's talk about a documentary. We'll leave the two other Australian dramas okay. for a moment. SAW, this is they're calling this, which is the abbreviation of Stock Acre Waterman, a lot of Australians involved in this, um, and it's it's uh, on SBS. I think it was commissioned as a three-parter, I read, but they've uh, they've actually made only two parts. Yeah, I read that it was going to be three parts. I was madly trying to figure out, well, what is it? But, yeah, I think they only did two in the end. Yeah, but it's this is just it's amazing. So they've got the, the three um, key players in it, um, Pete Waterman, Mike Stock, Stock and Matt Aitken. Matt Aitken. Yeah. They've got separate interviews with all of them, which are just brilliant. Really they have brilliant. so many insights into yeah. how it all worked, and you just go, you keep going, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. The stories they've got to tell about the artists, working with the artists, working with the record companies, working with the reception, the sort of music industry gives them. So, oh, these guys, you know, they're not really respected for what they achieve. No, they were not And you not get a feeling respected. even now they're still, yep. you know, they're still on the outer a little bit, aren't they? Aren't yeah, they? that's why I think it's time to do a re-evaluation of them because I don't think we've given them enough credit in the past and I don't think we've given them enough credit for the musical genius that they could throw a song together like that. I mean, people used to laugh at them and say, oh, they're a factory, they do it all on, com on a computer. But someone had to write those songs and those songs were bangers and they worked very quickly and you know i mentioned this briefly last week donna summer loved working with them because she said these guys really really know their shit you go in they sing the song to you you record <laughs> it you might do it in bits and pieces and they put it together after you leave the studio she said but there's none of this let's do 50 takes and let's you know she said they know exactly what they're doing and they should get credit for that, not, oh, they're just some, you know, computerised factory. Yeah. There's still skill involved in but that. they could work quickly. I mean, look, the first hit they had was with, of all people, Divine. Yeah. Right? I think it was the third song that was released, um, the third artist they'd work with, and it was You Think You're a Man. Yeah. And they tell this great story about they thought they'd all finished, Divine was on his way to the airport to fly back to the US. Um, was it Pete Waterman who? No. I think Matt was, was one of the managers. Matt or Mike. The had manager, Divine's manager, heard the song. Yeah, no, this isn't right. He's, you've got him singing. He doesn't sing. He gets on stage and yells. Yes. They said, oh, Lordy, we'll have to redo it. So they ring, ring the airport, get a message to them. They come back to the studio. They re-record him shouting. Send him back to the airport and off he goes. And the other great story of that was at Kylie. Kylie's first trip to the UK. Um, they weren't, they were just all over the place. They weren't properly organized. Didn't Kylie, really know who she was. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and they, they ring up, one of them rings up Pete Waterman. Pete was away. You go, Oh, we've got someone called Kylie Minogue. And Pete goes, Oh, that's right. I forgot to tell you. She was coming over. Um, so anyway, they get her in the studio on la her last day in London, I think it was, and just realize, well, they've really messed up here. 
So they just get her to bang out some Through I, sh- I should be so lucky because someone said, oh, she should be so lucky. <laughs> and they just threw that song together in an emergency. Yeah, and they, they wrote it, it sort of as – and they gave her the lyrics as they were coming off, I know. off the pad. Um, Insane. And away they went. You know, great story about Divine. So Divine came to Australia <laughs> on, on off the back of that song. Right. Had been on Countdown, was on Countdown, was touring around Australia, played at the Gold Coast. I was living in Brisbane – Played at the Gold Coast. Then I went out to the Mansfield Tavern to see Divine. Show cancelled. Queensland Police had stopped oh, no. it performing. I've never been so angry to live under Joe Bajelki Peterson as I was that night. If I'd had an inkling that that was going to happen, I would have driven to the Gold Coast yes. to see Divine. So I never saw Divine live because this perception that Divine would do something so outrageous on stage that Queenslanders wouldn't be able to cope. Wow. Ridiculous. Some of the other interviews that I, I really loved are Hazel Dean. How yeah. good was seeing Hazel Dean again? Yeah. And you forget how how bigger artist she was. And her songs were great. And Hazel Dean, I follow her on Twitter. Okay. She's still out there now, still doing it. She's a big supporter of uh, LGBT and particularly trans rights. And she's actually got one of her songs, Turn It Into Love, which is a song Kylie Minogue recorded on her uh, LP as well. Um, and she's made that a, a trans anthem. I love Hazel Dean. Their first number one, was uh, Dead or Alive, Yeah, Pete Burns, which I'm guessing this would still be a floor filler in clubs right around the world. I'd say to this day, uh, you, you spin, spin me, me around. around. Oh, yeah. Absolute classic. Yeah. Timeless. Yeah. Timeless. Um, and they, they did a lot of work. Uh, another, there's interviews with uh, Princess, uh, Say I'm Your Number One. What a great song that is yeah. too. I think they. she looks like she's living in New York or something. Yeah, I thought so, like, across from New York. Well, what about that part, though, where sometimes with – I think I think it's uh, You Spin Me Round. The song was – everyone wanted to buy the 12-inch. Right. The 12-inch version, and they couldn't keep up demand. They couldn't figure out why it wasn't charting at first, and it was because the demand was for the 12-inch, not the 7-inch. All those little fascinating facts about how DJs would play their song. But, you know, it's really – Interesting. I lo- would love to have known more about the UK reaction to that because, you know, once Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan started singing songs, Australian radio would not play them. Right. They would be number one in the charts for several weeks, both of them, each with their songs. The only time you would hear it, I was living in Melbourne at the time, and Fox FM would do the top eight at eight. Oh, yeah. Viewer phone-ins. And I would sit and listen to it because this was the only way to hear their song. You'd sit there and listen to them count down the top eight and they'd get to number one <laughs> and they'd go, here it is, as voted by you, the listeners. They'd play a Kylie or the Jason track and then they'd never play it again until the next night at eight o'clock. One artist who was absent, maybe they turn up in the second episode, it was Bananarama. Yeah, that's a big... There's no interview with Bananarama. I'm just wondering if there's any ongoing, you know... I don't know what it is. between Bananarama and the producers. Yeah, they won't speak to the uh, Saw, A Journey Through Saw podcast. That's okay. fantastic. Right. They're still all the time saying we'd love to do that. There's a, they talk about how after Venus and that album, Love in the First Degree, degree and I heard a rumour. It was all great. And that's when Siobhan left the group. And then they tried to get some thing going with them and it didn't seem to work and they kind of left and the relationship seems to have broken down at that point. 
Mel and Kim's another high point yeah. of that uh, first episode. Yeah. Wow, that's so good. Tells the story. Um, it's really moving and um, really inspiring too, you know, what, what they did. And particularly to hear that they would ask them questions when they were mic'd up yeah. and just get them to talk and giggle amongst themselves and they'd use snatches of that on the LP to show them the authenticity of that, how, you know, that th they used those girls and they got those girls' personalities into those records. Amazing. Um, and... Banana Rama, I don't think they ever had never had a number one in the UK, but they had one in the US. Yeah. Is that Venus? Uh, yes, they did sure have a number one with Venus in the US. So yeah. I think it went crazy there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's just wonderful. Uh, Sam Fox, uh, someone else they worked with, a real range of people. But I guess the real highlight for me in that first episode has got to be Rick Astley. Yeah. Right? What That what, voice. Yeah. It's just the, the success they had with him. That was when I remember the tide really turning against them because I was working in Melbourne and there was this guy in the office and it wasn't cool to like Rick Astley. <laughs> and he and I used to sneak over to Brasher's in the lunch hour <laughs> and buy the record and all that and go, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. It was really uncool to like Stock Aitken Waterman music in Australia because, you know, I think there was this – I often talk about this how there was the musical chain was broken in Australia with the end of Countdown. Countdown ended in 1986 and it kind of created this void where there wasn't a place for pop music anymore and it, it all became about rock music in Australia at, at that period and then when the pop music started coming back there was this movement against it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and Rick worked for Stockacre Water and making the tea making tea. for 12 months yeah. before he got a chance to do a record. Yeah. I think was it um, his first release was uh, – Never Gonna Give You Up. Yeah, never, which was yeah. massive everywhere. Still to this day, yeah. that is – Yeah, and he's still performing. He's still touring. Yeah. I mean, he looks he looks amazing. <laughs> he looks amazing. He does. <laughs> well, I guess that hair, it's never changed, has it? Yeah. So it's, it's brilliant. So I, I can't recommend this highly enough. So um, Stop Gake and Waterman, it's on SBS On Demand. Yeah. Uh, two episodes. Well, the second episode will be up now, won't it? Or did the first one just go to where no, this week? It just went to where okay, this so week. Okay, so next week we're waiting. A yeah, few more yeah. days after okay. we release this episode. Look, let's move on. We've been spending a fair bit of time on these first two first two projects. Um, the Artful Dodger, uh, this was a bit of a surprise package to me. I, when I first saw the name, I didn't realise, you, you think this is going to be a British drama, right, a, a Dickens tale, uh, but no, it's um, made in Australia, a largely Australian car set in Australia in the 1850s. They're called the Colony Port Victory. I'm not sure why they've, they've filled with the name. Uh, Jack Dawkins is the Artful Dodger. He, he's been... Um, deported to Australia for um, robbery, wasn't it? Pickpocket. Oh, yeah, pickpocket, yeah. yeah. But somehow he's become a surgeon. Yeah. Right? And um, so he's – but, gee, and that's that's one of the things. There's a lot of surgery <laughs> in this, and it's it's surgery from the 1850s. It's where gruesome. Hacksaws yeah. and um, axes and, um, wow, some of the scenes and how they dispose of the limbs and – stuff like that. I mean, it's not over the top, but it's just a bit confronting at times, you know. Uh, some viewers will be looking away um, a little bit, but it's um, it's not scary stuff. 
but um, he gets in some trouble. He's he likes playing cards. He felt he was cheated. He got into debt to a bookmaker. Great uh, part played by Tim Minchin. Yeah, and um, they're chasing him for the debt, and that's how it sets up in this first series. Um, but look, I really enjoyed this. I loved it. I loved it. You know, it works so well for me because if you think about Oliver Twist or the musical Oliver, I saw the musical Oliver once when I was a kid, but I can tell you those characters were so iconic. I knew exactly who the Artful Dodger was and who Fagin was. Mm. So here I am, what, 40 years later <laughs> watching this and I'm right on board and going, yep, I'm buying this because those characters loom, still loom so large in my memory. It actually makes me want to go back and watch the original Oliver and do a bit of research on Oliver Twist. It, very conveniently, Charles Dickens did write it that the um, Artful Dodger was sent to Australia, um, to, to the penal colony. So that has played into this. I don't know that I really buy that he became a surgeon on the ship out here, but look, whatever. It makes for a great story. Um, and I'm so blown away by the cast because mm. I've never seen so many Australian actors in a production and not realised who they were. It's like I was watching it going, you're vaguely familiar. Now. Who are you? And I didn't, didn't Google it. I just kept watching it. And then all of a sudden I'd be like, oh, my God, that's Susie Porter. Yeah. Oh my. Then I was like in episode two, I was like, Who's Tim Billabillary? That's this that voice. That's Luke Carroll. Now Luke Carroll's, you know, another one of those actors like Kit Gurry that I interviewed 25 years ago on Channel V <laughs> when he did his first movie, right. Australian Rules. And you watch these people and see them in everything, and then suddenly go, man, you're unrecognisable in this. This the cast. Tim Minchin is unrecognisable. Like, what, for the, I was like, is that Tim Minchin? Is it <laughs> really having to look closely? Like the characterisation and. It's just fantastic. Tom Budges, the the that pompous guy, reading his poetry out and trying oh, to yeah, woo the girl. He's excellent. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Damien Garvey plays the governor. Susie Porter's his wife. So good. But they're they're yeah they're both so good. Um, David Thewlis, who I didn't know a lot about. Oh no, I've always he's, loved. He's David quite a star, Thewlis. isn't he? Yeah, in the British UK. actor. Yeah, he's very good as. Um, He's so good as Fagin. Fagin, The way that he calls uh, the Artful Dodger Dodge, (laughs) I love that nickname he has for him, and he embodies Fagin. Like, I really, really bought him as a character. Yeah. The two leads, I guess, are uh, Thomas Brodie Sangster, who who we loved in uh, The Queen's Gambit. Yep. Uh, In Pistol. As well, he played Malcolm McLaren. That's right. He was so good That's in that. That's right. And, um, and he's the little boy from Love Actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it. So he gets some great roles, doesn't he? he really, yeah. He, I guess he's been in some projects we, and, we don't know, but he's got some great stuff. And then what seat. about this is just some of the supporting? What about Kim Gingell oh, as the yeah. drunken professor yep. Yep. wanting to operate on people when he's pissed? And then you've got uh, <laughs> Hugh Higginson as the, as the bishop. You know, oh, God, it was Andrea so Dimitriades yeah. is in there. And um, Maya Mitchell is a bit of a scene stealer. She's almost the, the co-lead with um, 
Thomas Brody Sanky yeah. isn't she? Um, She's very strong and you know her, her character works really good for me and sometimes I think with historical epics where they try to put in you know today's values of the modern woman and all that sometimes it doesn't quite work but I really buy it within this and I really buy it within this setting that she goes into this filthy hospital and says this is disgraceful open the windows clean the sheets you know and um, they say you can't do this you're just a woman and she goes I'm the governor's daughter or I'm next to royalty in this town. Yes, yes, I bought it all. So, yeah, look, we, we both really like this. So the Artful Dodger, it's on Disney+. Plus. It's, um, it's a co-production made by Curio Pictures, which is Joe Porter, yep. and Beach Road Pictures, which is David Ma and David Taylor. And the other name that helps give this some quality is Andrew Knight, yep. who wrote it. I mean, that guy. Yeah. Honestly, he's he must so, have finished Bay of Fires and gone straight on to Artful Dodger. Well, he probably wrote something in between yeah. as well. We don't know about yet. <laughs> yes. He's just very prolific. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. No, this is this is this is an epic achievement that they've pulled off, and I hope this is a huge hit all around the world. It has the potential to, I think. Yeah, that name, the Artful Dodger. Everybody knows who the Artful Dodger is. Sure. Even if you haven't seen Oliver, it's kind of floating around in pop culture. You kind of know that guy's a bit of a scammer, bit of a con man. I just think the whole concept is brilliant. Yeah, I just hope it gets the PR that it deserves. You know, yeah. because it's if promoted the right way, that that, that could be huge. Yeah. Okay, let's finish with Paper Dolls. Yeah. Something else, I think, which is probably going to do very well for um, Paramount Plus when it comes out. It's the a new series from producer Mark Fennessy, uh, The Last King of the Cross he had earlier this year. They're working on that second season. Uh, the first three episodes of Paper Dolls drop on Sunday, December 3. Yep. And it's it's sort of telling the story of Bardo. It's it sort of a, is. Um, yeah, sort of is. Yeah. That's the mostly back, is. That's the background. That yeah. they're claiming it's completely fictitious. Yeah. But Belinda Chapel was a member of Bardo. She wrote a memoir. She was there. She knows all the she stories. She went to Mark and said, "Look, I think this would make a great TV yeah. series." He read what she'd put together and he thought, "Yeah, look, I think you're right." And they've developed this. And, and you watch that first episode and you just go, "Yep." That happened in Bardo. <laughs> yep, I recognise that. But, and even the TV show, Pop Rush, even the logo is the same as Pop Stars, the show it's based on. Yeah, they're having some fun and they're being, there's some creative licence there. But yeah, this is hugely based on Belinda Chapel's experiences. Yeah. So it's a girl group, that, but the girl group's already together. Yeah. We don't see any of the how they got put together. No, none of the reality this, so, TV shows. Which is sort of good, I guess. We yeah. don't you don't need all that stuff. So the girl groups together, they sack one of their members, they bring in a new member, and they have to start marketing the group again. Uh, Probably one of the central characters is Emma Booth as Margot Murray. She's very good too. Yeah, she's crazy. She's, she's the sort of record label's head of marketing and um, the group's called Harlow and Harlow is her project. She's, yeah. She's responsible and she's fighting against all these terrible blokes, Yeah, these sort of ageing hipsters who think they know what, um, what you know, the teenage audience wants and they want to really manipulate this band and then she's sort of walking this fine line between, you know, keeping the girls happy and on side yeah. and not sort of encroaching, you know, not making them do things they shouldn't. You know, they'd never want to do. Um, 
and keeping the sort of label happy in her boss. Yeah, and I found her character really believable and there was just a little, you know, some of the, that little moment in the first episode where they're having a meeting at the record company and, you know, Ditch Davey, who's playing the record boss, is sort of talking to this young female worker there and Emma Booth sort of gives him a look and you go, <laughs> oh, there's something going on here in that look. She's not. You can tell that she's this woman having to work in this world and she's dealing with a lot on all sides, but she's just being very headstrong and just getting her way through it. But, yeah, yeah no, very I, interesting character. I mentioned you before when we had a quick chat and I said, look, I'm not really liking Ditch Davy in this, but then he, you're not supposed to, are you? No, I think he's, he's going to turn out to be a real sleazebag. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he sort of is. I mean, it, it's an amazing start. I mean, the, um, the, the girl who's been chosen to – join the group, I think it's Izzy James, isn't it, um, as Im Imalia, I think that the character name is. And Oh, yep, yep. Well, no, actually, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Imalia. Izzy. Imalia is her name. Izzy James is the character. Correct. Yeah. And she's a pop star that has been a success as a solo artist, but something went horribly wrong and we're, that's a backstory that's still to be filled in. And she's working as a pizza delivery person and a cook and does everything and I guess what's the family pizza business. You yeah. Know? And, um, yeah, they, they decide to put her back in the group and she's got some history with the with Ditch Davies' character. Yeah. We don't know what at the start. Yeah. She turns up outside his house one night sort of almost stalking him. He happens to look out the window and see her and come, what are you doing here? But it's still not explained no. what's gone on between them. The The other interesting dynamic there is one of the girls in the group is Ditch Davies' daughter, right? The record, Oh, I didn't get that. Yeah, the record label's boss oh. has got one of his daughters in oh, the group. Oh, I didn't pick that because the, those four girls in the group are kind of nasty. In the first episode, There's you don't really find out who they are except they're a bit of a pack. Yeah. And they're a bit yeah. mean girls. They don't really welcome that new singer into their midst. Yeah. And it's all a bit nasty. Um, well, you're really going to like episode three. I'm right. going to say what happened. Okay. But you're going to think, oh, that's very clever. Yep. And very smart. And as the series progresses, you get, I think, I assume each girl will have a significant role in a particular episode. Yep. We'll get to learn a get little bit. Get a bit of their backstory. Yeah, which is really good and you sort of understand what's going on a little bit better. And I like the way you're left wondering at the start, what is the relationship between this person and that person? Because you think, well, if I keep watching, I'll find out. And they, you do, you start to get. Well, that's very clever because we know that we, we recognise so much of it from pop stars and Bardo. It is good to be going, but I don't quite understand what this uh, version is going to do. And, look, I think this show's going to be huge, James. I think there's still a lot of Bardo fans out there. I think we forget how big Bardo was at the time, how big pop stars was at the time. That was yeah, back in the days you could get not, two million an episode, yeah, wasn't it? but I don't think it's going to be big because of Bardo. I think it's going to be big because people like a good girl group. I suppose. And there's a performance at the end of each episode, and it's not bad. You know, they've done a good job with the music. I mean, that Mark Fantasy said, look, we needed people that could act, people that could sing, and people that could dance. Yeah. And he said they were surprised by how many they got. He reckons they could have formed three really good girl groups. So the talent they've got is pretty good, and they perform some good stuff. They, I think the songs are original. They had a couple of um, 
songwriters who worked on the material. So they've done a pretty good job on that score. I guarantee you, though, every single person who loves Bardot will be subscribing to Paramount Plus to watch this. Because they're, we're not going. They're, they're all wanting a Bardo reunion tour. It's not going to happen unless they can convince no. Sophie Monk to do it. So it's probably never going to happen. Um, so this is the next best thing. You've got Belinda Chapman's book. She's written her autobiography, and she's made this show. And yeah, they're going to love it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's Bardo. It's on Paramount Plus. It was originally commissioned for ten, but. 10 have sort of refined their business model a bit and they want they want all those key local dramas and like NCIS Sydney, we saw that yep. previously. They're premiering on Paramount Plus. They really want to build that subscriber base, which sort of makes sense. Yep. Maybe it'll pop up pop up on 10 one day. I'm sure it will. I know. I noticed they slipped in that first episode of NCIS Sydney onto 10 the other night. Oh, did they already? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, already. <laughs> yeah, it's like... <laughs> Well, but you, they'd be mad not to, right, oh, of James? Course, of it's course. the most, what, new, most watched new show on the American Fall TV series. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if they, you know, to screen the first episode and say, if you like this, now subscribe to Paramount Plus, of course yeah, they're going to do it. That's clever. I mean, yeah. you've got to. You, you can't just sit there with a free-to-air network and, no. hey, everything's fine. That's right. The world's different. Right? Yeah. It's Particularly very, when that free-to-air network very, doesn't have very a lot of content. Different. Okay, a couple of quick things. We're um, just about out of time here. I've been watching a couple of other things. Julia, the second season. Oh, and yeah. Annika, the second season. Right. They're both very good. I'm really enjoying them. Yeah. Julia starts off that second season. She's in France. There's a couple of episodes there before she comes back to her um, TV station in Boston, and that's all very different too. So there's a lot to like about the second season of Julia. And Annika's great um, – that sort of police investigation unit in Glasgow. I think they're the Marine Investigation Unit or something they're called. And she's a lot more into literature, I noticed. There were she sort of there was stuff breaking the fourth wall in that first season where she talks to the camera and she turns around and that can be a bit unsettling, but it's sort of I'm really on board with it now in this second season. And she's quoting books. George Orwell is uh, one of the authors. She talks a lot about in one of the the episodes in this second season. So, look, I'm really enjoying that. And quickly before we wrap, and I, I leave the last word with you, I had a couple of emails that I've been very slow, um, very slow to uh, bring them up. We've had a, somebody, when we talked about Signora Volpe last week. Yes. And how, look, it was been a bit delayed and we thought that said something about it. But as an email, uh, Lyle has pointed out to me, this actually screened on Acorn first oh, in really? Australia. Ah. So the BBC's picked it up for a second run. So it was on here quite earlier in the piece. Yeah, nice. So we did lead you a little bit astray about that one. And um, a guy called Bilko, who's on radio up in Queensland, does a breakfast show up there, he's told me we should be looking at something called Unwanted, which I don't know much about, but a cruise ship that picks up some refugees, Oh, which sounds an interesting premise. So, yep. Bilko, I'm going to look out for that, and we'll probably uh, report back on that in the future. Oh, look, I'm trying to remember the name of a movie. I just watched this brand new movie on Netflix produced by Barack and Michelle Obama about, uh, it's a black history film about the man that was behind the biggest protest march at that time, uh, into Washington. Can't remember what the name of it's called. It's, it's, but it was great. Um, and I've been watching a lot of, uh, Rustin. 
Rust, is that what it, what, show me? No. Yep, that's it. That's it. Rustin. Yep. Yeah, activist Bayard Rustin. That's it. But, faces yeah, race, they, the man homophobia. Yeah. Yep. Amazing. Amazing. So I just okay. watched that movie, but I have been a bit distracted. I'm listening to Barbara Streisand's oh. <laughs> audio book yes. on Audible, and she talks to you like you're her friend. <laughs> she, you know, she just... You know, she throws in a few, mm, and you know, it's like you're having this person is chatting away in your ear. But what it's done is it's really made me think about re-watching a lot of her films and these incredible stories she tells, James, where when Netflix were going to put A Star Is Born, she went, please, I just want to put a couple of extra shots into the last scene. So this is her version, of yeah. course. Yeah. So there's a new version of A Star Is Born on Netflix. With Barbara Streisand. Yeah, yeah, that she's added some shots wow. different from the original. And yeah. the other amazing story she told was The Way We Were. She spent a long time trying to convince Sony that for the 50th anniversary Blu-ray, could they please put in these deleted scenes that had been taken out that she said changed the whole film. And she, she begged them and begged them and they finally said, <laughs> Said yes. When they finally said yes, she went, oh, one more thing. <laughs> and what she said was, and this is how clever she is, and yes, she's a perfectionist, but she said, kids don't buy Blu-rays. Please, can you put the unra- can you put the extended version onto iTunes as a download so that new kids watching this can see can get a choice of the original by Cindy po- Sydney Pollack or this new one with this extra footage? Like she thinks of everything. It's fantastic. I'm well, just loving it so much. I want to listen to that too, but the downside is you've got to find how long to listen. Forty-eight hours. <laughs> Well, and so if you to... and if you stop it to go now, I'm going to go off and find see if I can mm. find the way we wore where that takes a bit of time, you know. But, but I'm working you, my way. Even if you cut out an hour a day, it's still going yeah. to take you 48 days. That's right. To listen to it. All yeah, while. yeah, but yeah. It yeah. sounds like it's probably worth. It. Yeah, it's it's just amazing. You know, we're, t- we're talking about the history of Hollywood, Broadway, musical recordings, or you forget all the duets she did with Donna Summer and Barry Gibb and Neil Diamond, and it just goes on. On and on, and then she goes to record a new record, and they Columbia go, "Oh no, well, you know, well, we don't think that'll work," you know. And she, you're like, "Come on, it's Streisand." It's um, probably a good thing. So Audible, if you, oh, I guess it's on Audible. It is. So you get a man- month free. Be amazing. So what you can do, you get one pick. Go and pick so the Barbara Streisand. Streisand two hours you get a day. Forty-eight hours, <laughs> yeah. right? And then just sign off before you get charged yeah, if yeah. you don't want to continue yeah. or find something else for you for your next month. Well, I'm getting, that'll fill up your first couple of months. Quickly, show of the week? Oh, um, The Artful Dodger. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I'm torn. There's three. Look, Far Away Downs was good, but I'm torn between Dodger, Dolls, and Stockdake and Waterman. Yeah. That's the doco. I can't really go there. So it's between the Dodger and the Dolls. I'm going to have to go Dolls. You're going Dolls, all right. Yeah. Dodger and Dolls. Look, it's yeah. great that we're arguing about which is the best Australian show of the of the week. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't get to tell my Pete Waterman story quickly because I did promise Please, that please, please. Chester Cathedral last year have a big model train display yep. organised by Pete Waterman. He's a massive train buff. <laughs> I was staying over there. I was in Manchester for a few months last year. I read about it. I thought, I've got to go down and see this. I like, I'm a bit of a train buff too. Yeah. I've got to go down there. I didn't know. I wasn't expecting to see him. We went in there on a Saturday morning. This is a huge layout in the cathedral, right? All the trains. And there at the corner of my eye, down the back, there's Pete Waterman. <laughs> 
you know. <laughs> he's walking around. He's got a little screwdriver. Oh. He's tightening this, tightening that fixing the wheels on another train, testing some of the controls. There's a whole bunch of sort of train nerds, of course, but Pete Waterman there sort of choreographing everything like he's pushing the buttons on a, a session with Kylie or something. And I went up, <laughs> we had a good chat. He sat wow. down and we, we talked about some of his days in the, the music business yep. and how he's into trains now. So it was, yeah, very exciting. And did you say day. to him, you, I, was you, very happy. I was promoting your records in Smash Hits magazine? Well, I, did, I did bring that up a bit. He, to be fair, he didn't seem all that interested. Right. But, but he was very kind and generous with his time. You yeah. Know, so, but he did have a, there was a lot going on. There was, there was yeah. a reasonable crowd there looking at, looking at all this. But yeah, no, he was. It's good to hear that he's approachable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, he was lovely. He was lovely. Okay, Andrew, thank you very much. Thanks, James. We'll be back and we'll do it again next week. You betcha.